Welcome to the Pulp Nostalgia Audiocast. Sorry about the delay in getting a new episode out last week. With the return from Pulp Fest and some other projects, the week was just a little busy, so we're going to get caught up this week. In this episode, we have part one of Hollywood on the Moon by Henry Kuttner, originally published in the April 1938 issue of Thrilling Wonder Stories. The stories included in our new pulp collection from Brick Pickle Media, Pulp Adventures on the Moon. You can find more info and order the book at brickpicklemedia.com books or from Amazon or any other bookstore. And that link is also in the show notes. This podcast is a Brick Pickle Media production, copyright 2019. For more from Brick Pickle Media, visit www.pulpaudiocast.com. And with that, on with the show. Chapter 1. Camera Etheretti. Mare Imbrium is the most desolate spot on the moon. It is a bleak, fantastic inferno of jagged rocks and volcanic ash, airless and frigid. The monotony of the scene is broken only by craters of varying sizes, ominous reminders of the meteors that plunge like bullets through the void, a deadly, ever-present menace to the Earthman hardy enough to venture there. Yet in this lunar no-man's land, two figures in bulky space suits were racing desperately toward a high outcropping of stone. Though apparently nothing pursued them, there was stark horror in the glances they threw over their shoulders. One was a girl, her dark hair a cloudy mass within a transparent helmet. The other was a man whose face was curiously expressionless, and whose movements somehow failed to match the animation of the girls. Yet when she stumbled and fell, he paused and helped her to her feet. About to resume her flight, the girl's mouth gaped in an open square of terror. She flung up a pointing glove. The shining thing had sprung into existence without warning. Its brilliance eclipsed the dim globe of the earth, low on the horizon in the white splendor of the stars. It seemed to be a gigantic shell of flame, spinning madly in a blaze of glaring colors, the pole of its axis elongated into two thin cords of light that trailed into nothingness. It hesitated, hovering, then dipped as though in mocking salute. It swept down toward the two. From its flaming core, streamers of light flared out. Abruptly, the man in the spacesuit was lifted as though by giant, invisible hands. Writhing and twisting, he was pulled closer to the shining thing. The girl made a frantic clutch at her belt and drew a slender tube, but before she could use it, the inexplicable power had dragged her feet clear of the ground. She hung for a moment, motionless. From above, a beam of light fingered out, but the girl did not glance up. She was staring, horror-stricken at her companion. His eyes were distended hideously. All over the spacesuit, a dim radiance seemed to play. Then abruptly, fire sprouted from the neckband of his suit. A flower of flame blossomed where his helmet had been. Instinct with a weird and terrible beauty, it flamed up into a tapering spire, elongated and stretched until a lambent thread stretched out toward the spinning thing of light. And from every joint in the spacesuit, wrists and feet and waist, streamers blazed out, gleaming traceries that united and stretched avid fingers toward the whirling blaze. From the tube in the girl's glove hand, a thin, bluish beam sprang. Already her suit was glowing ominously as she was drawn inexorably closer. Her face was drained of blood, contorted in an agony of fear. Anthony Quaid spoke sleepily. Oh, um, take it over, Peters. The chief's buzzing me. Tony Quaid, turning from a camera in the transparent nose of the spaceship, cast a last glance at the scene below, vividly distinct in the searchlight's beam. Valen Ross was a good stunt girl. There wasn't a star on the payroll of Nine Planet Films, Inc. who would risk her skin on this side of the moon. But the job had to be done, and Quaid knew Valen could do it. Quaid had a risk trick of knowing such things. That was why, when Nine Planets wanted special effects that entailed plenty of risk, they hired Quaid for the job. Space Bandit needed Quaid. It was the biggest picture on Nine Planets' schedule this year, and they had already expended fantastic sum on his production. 
Van Zorn, the chief, would get it back, of course, provided Quaid did his job well. Space Bandit would be big box office on special effects. And Tony Quaid, with his picked band of film experts, was the only man able enough and courageous enough to tackle the assignment, on a contingent basis at that. Gaunt, hollow-cheeked, Peter slipped into Quaid's seat before the telephoto lens camera and began to manipulate the keyboard, occasionally pausing to peer through a finder. On other levels, various members of the crew were busy operating lights and cameras. Tony Quaid went through a door, stooping slightly to avoid bumping his head and arranged his big bone body in a chair before the televisor. For a second, he contemplatively eyed the peroxide blonde who was gazing at him and murmuring, Mr. Quaid, please! Mr. Quaid, please! He flipped over a switch. Immediately, a gigantic eye appeared on the screen and a hoarse voice was heard growling curses. Hello, Chief, Quaid said tentatively. Apparently, Von Zorn was in a bad humor. The eye withdrew and gave place to a small, simian face with a toothbrush mustache and a crop of bristling hair. Snapping black eyes regarded Quaid menacingly. The deadline on your special effects for Space Bandit is November 9th. You haven't by any chance forgotten that, Quaid? Van Zorn inquired with feigned politeness. Oh, for Pete's sake, Quaid said relieved. I'll the stuff for you by then. There's plenty of time. You're not worrying already, are you? You're the one to do the worrying, Von Zorn observed. Unless you turn in a satisfactory film, you don't get paid. I don't give a hoot and mercury about that. But unfortunately, we've advertised Space Bandit so big that unless you deliver the goods, it won't draw flies. Okay, Quaid nodded. I'm shooting the last of the Mari Imbrium sequence now, and it's coming along fine. The work on Eros will be finished pretty soon, and we can blow a hole in the asteroid big enough to give you a super colossal spectacle. Greg did your calculation, didn't he? Well, he made a big mistake somewhere. You can't use Eros. Quaid's eyes changed. He leaned forward. What the heck? I've rented the asteroid for a month. My claim's perfectly good. There's no intelligent life there above the 8th level. In fact, there's no life at... I know, Van Zorn said unpleasantly. I've read the law. All matter in the solar system is the property of the Earth government can be rented or purchased from it unless already inhabited by life above the 8th level intelligence. Which is about that of Greg. Lord knows how it happened. He should have checked and double-checked his figures. Quaid restrained himself with an effort. Would you mind telling me just why I can't use arrows? Because it's heading into an ether eddy. And you know what that means. Extinction. Blotto. Your polar city isn't half-built and it'll take ten days to complete it. The ether eddy will reach Eros orbit in a week. Thanks for telling me, Quaid said and shut off the televisor. He sat silent, regarding his large, capable hands. He had built up a fortune with them and now, at one stroke, he was losing it, for he had staked almost everything he owned on this enterprise. Quaid looked up as Peters came in. Shooting's done, Tony, the gaunt man said. We're taking Valen and the robot aboard now. Looks pretty good. Okay, Quaid grunted. No more shots today. Tell the pod to head for Hollywood on the moon. Muy pronto. Frowning, Quaid went into the ship's transparent nose. He stood there silent, watching the silvery-gray surface of Mari Imbrium race past below. As the ship's speed increased, the Apennines became visible, towering against the star-speckled sky to the north, but the gigantic range was soon left behind. They fled over the crater of Herodotus and sped on while the Earth sank lower and lower and at last dropped beneath the horizon. The moon is egg-shaped. The larger part is turned perpetually toward the Earth, but the smaller end is scooped out into a vast crater. Once volcanic activity in some long past eon had blown a fragment as large as the asteroid Vesta. Within this great hollow are an atmosphere, life, great buildings and studios. Hollywood on the moon. A little thrill shook Quaid as the ship sped over the great rim and he saw beneath him the film capital. He could never become quite used to this tremendous city rising from an arid and inhospitable world. 
and, because films were the breath of life to Quaid, he felt oddly cold at the thought of going broke and dropping out of the life of the picture metropolis. For in Hollywood on the Moon is no place for a weakling. It is run through a combination of power, graft, and efficiency, but there is no room for incompetence. The city of terraces and towers and wide streets was the most helpful in the solar system because of the artificial atmosphere, germ-free and automatically purified, kept on the moon by an electromagnetic gravity field created by gigantic machines in the caverns beneath the surface. The air blanket shields Hollywood on the moon from the blazing rays of the sun, protects it from the chill of frigid space aided by huge plates that broadcast radiant heat. It is the dream of every girl's life to drive along Lunar Boulevard and dance at the silver spacesuit, a dream one girl in a hundred thousand ever realizes. Quaid called Peters. The gaunt-faced camera expert came to the ship's nose, scratching a grace-doubled cheek. He cast a quick glance down at the sunlit city. Nice to be back, but there's trouble, Tony, isn't there? What's happened? Swiftly, Quaid told him. Peters whistled. Well, what can we do? Use Ganymede. Jupiter's moon, it's too far. No, you sap. The asteroid Ganymede. It'll be at Peralan in a few days, and I'll bring it in the orbit of Mars. Close enough for us. We can't use Eros. After the Ether Eddy hits it, there won't be any Eros. I'll have to put up a set at Ganymede's pole and film the explosion from there. It'll be a rush job. We can make it before the deadline. What about property rights? I want you to attend to that. I'm going to get my own cruiser refueled and head there now. You rent it for a month, and yeah, better get an option too. If we kick it out of its orbit, we can just take up the option. We'll be safe. It'll be our own property then. Order the Arrows crew over to Ganymede right away and tell them to get started building the set. You finish the Mari Imbrium scenes, then follow. We'll need all the help we can get. Okay, Peters assented as the ship grounded with a jar. Where are you off to now? I, said Qua grimly, I'm going to find Greg. Greg was at the silver spacesuit, his round fat face ludicrously disconsolate between his glistening bald dome. When he saw Quaid, he looked as though he were going to cry. Oh, don't take it so hard, Quaid growled, sliding into a cushioned chair at Greg's side. I'm not going to fire you, though you know darn well you deserve it. What happened? It was my fault, Tony, Greg said in a choked voice. You don't know how sorry I am. I know what it means to you. I've been nearly crazy for the last few weeks. Eh? Quaid stared and then glanced up as a waitress glided up in her tiny, gilded autocar. I'm not hungry, thanks. Wait a minute, yes I am. I've got a long ride ahead. Double order of ham and eggs. The girl looked shocked and made a feeble attempt to suggest moon truffle salad instead, but Quaid waved her away and turned back to Greg. Now what is this all about? It's my daughter, Greg said, scrubbing at his plump cheeks. I know it's nothing to you, but it's the reason I made such an awful mistake and overlooked that other Eddie. I've been worried about my daughter, been half crazy. She's movie-struck, Tony, you know? Quaid nodded. What'd you do, stow away on a moonship? Greg nodded miserably. Her mother told me she'd left a note and was coming to Highwood on the moon to get him pictures. You know what that means. Quaid knew. He'd never approved of the law that the film magnates had passed. He could understand their attitude. In the early days, the glamour of Hollywood on the moon had called girls from all over the world. Europe, Asia, America, Australia, and a veritable flood of eager applicants had poured in, smothering Moon City until regular work had been impossible. In ancient times, when Hollywood had been a tiny town on the shore of the Pacific Ocean, it had been easy for disappointed would-be stars to return home or find jobs. But the moon is 239,000 miles away from the Earth, and it cost the studios a fortune when in desperation they had herded the movie-struck girls together and shipped them home. They couldn't be allowed to stay. There wasn't room. And now the penalty for moon stowaways was a fine of $15,000 or 15 years imprisonment. I haven't got the money, of course, Greg said. At worst, I can't find Kathleen. She's afraid of the police, I'll bet, and hasn't dared get in touch with me. Or something may have happened to her. 
For Pete's sake, why didn't you tell me this weeks ago? I'd have paid the fine. You could have sent the kid back home with a good spanking. You're on a location. I didn't have a chance. Besides, I couldn't let you pay, Tony. Rats. I'll, uh, I guess I can't pay anyway, Greg. I've got all my dough tied up in this job, and if it flops, I want a split penny left. No, he's trying to pull any wires either. I'm persona non grata on the moon unless I bring home the bacon. And it's my fault. Blasted, Tony. I feel like jumping off the rim. Shut up, Quaid said affectionately. You lop-eared idiot. Everyone makes mistakes, and you couldn't help it anyway. I'm heading for Ganymede, and we'll have everything sewed up in a week. If you find your kid, keep her undercover until I get back. Okay, Greg said, getting up. That's why I came here. I thought she might have got a job as waitress somehow, but I guess not. Well, good luck. Quaid grinned reassuringly at Adam and attacked his ham and eggs. Presently, the lights were dimmed, and a crimson spot outlined the shimmering silver-clad figure of a girl who hung apparently suspended in empty air in the center of the room. Warm, throbbing music pulsed out, and the girl's throaty, languorous voice began to sing. Hello, sap. Quaid looked up. It was Sandra Steele. He grimaced and returned to his meal. Sandra Steele is the ultimate product of Hollywood on the moon. Her skin was a lifeless white, almost luminous, and her eyes, originally brown, had been tattooed a startling shade of violet. Her hair was a silvery web that floated unbound about her shoulders. On your way, pig, Quaid grunted. I don't want your autograph. No screen star likes to be called a pig, a synonym for chorus girl. Sandra's blue-nailed slender fingers twitched visibly, but she strained herself. You filthy little swine. Just watch how fast I'll break you now I'm in with Van Zorn. I've had enough of your impudence. Quaid drank some water and blinked sleepily. However, he knew Sandra was a dangerous enemy. If it hadn't meant losing all self-respect, he'd have made a different answer when she had first invited him to become what amounted to her gigolo. He had said no and had told her a few unpleasant truths, hoping they'd be good for her soul. Now she was playing at the Von Zorn, the chief, and that meant power. Listen, Tony, she said, bending to look directly into his eyes. Why not be nice? Von Zorn's mad as a hornet about this arrow's trouble, but I could take care of him. How about it? Go chase a meteor, Quaid said, and left her. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Chapter 2. Cut to Space Cruiser. Quaid hailed the taxi and was hurtled along Lunar Boulevard to the spaceport, where a ship waited, refueled, and ready. It was a two-man cruiser with the usual transparent camera ship nose, speedy and powerful. Nodding to the mechanic, Quaid glanced at the setting sun and climbed aboard. He entered the forward compartment and touched the siren that warned aircraft a spaceship was taking off. He set the gravity plates and went back into the rear room. A man was asleep in the hammock with Quaid's best fur robe pulled over him. Quaid emitted a startled oath and fled back to the instrument board to reverse the gravity. The ship, which had been lifting, settled. With hasty strides, Quaid returned to his passenger and planted the toe of his boot firmly where he thought it would do the most good. The next moment, he was staggering back with his ears buzzing the imprint of a hand red on his tan cheek. Jupiter! He exclaimed incredulously. A girl! For Pete's sake! You can't be Greg's kid! The girl looked like an indignant rabbit with a furry white helmet drawn tightly about her oval face, a stubborn little chin, and snapping brown eyes. She bounced out of the hammock, and Quaid retreated hastily. A buzzing drone came from the other compartment. With a bewildered look on his face, Quaid stepped back into the nose of the ship and met the gaze of Von Zorn. Lord, he moaned to himself, what have I done to deserve this? 
but he shut the door quickly behind him and smiled in what he hoped was a disarming fashion. At close range, Von Zorn more than ever resembled an ape. He knew it and was enormously sensitive about his appearance. Only a week ago, he had fired an ace director and made some wisecrack about the chief's simian appearance. What are you grinning about? He asked, eyeing Quaid with distaste. How about my picture? Space Bandit? Quaid put his back against the door. Simple. I'm switching the location to Ganymede. Go in there now, in fact. My Arrow's crew has already landed, I guess. Von Zorn took out a cigar made from the aromatic greenish tobacco grown on the moon and cut it carefully. I've trouble enough without you making it worse. Our last Venusian picture is flopping and we invested over a million in it. That blasted Carlisle woman's blowing it sky high. Jerry Carlisle? Yeah, the catch them alive dame. We pay out half a million to the biological labs to create duplicates of Venusian animals, and now there aren't any audience because Jerry Carlisle's brought back the real thing. He lapsed into a stream of fluent profanity. Had another picture for you, Quaid. A super special. The Star Parade. It doesn't look like you'll get the assignment. Sandra Steele's featured in it, and she won't work with you. That's nice of her, Quaid said, gently edging Von Zorn toward the door and hoping the girl would keep quiet. I'll see you later, Chief. I've got to hurry. Von Zorn became reflective. You know, I've half a mind to go with you. He paused and Quaid stopped breathing. But I've got a date with Sandra tonight, so you'll have to get along without me. Duh, that'll be tough, Quaid responded hoarsely and shut the door behind the chief. He was at the instrument board in a single leap and had sent the spaceship rocketing up almost before Von Zorn had had time to get clear. Quickly set the course. Where the heck are you taking me? An angry voice asked behind him. Quaid got up slowly, mopping his forehead. Listen, he said, I've been through a lot today. You may not know it, but you've caused enough trouble to throw Jupiter out of its orbit. And unless you're careful, young lady, you're going to get the spanking I told your father you deserved. She had pulled off her white helmet, but still wore a close-fitting worker's uniform of brown leather. Her chin went up. I don't care if my father does work for you. You can't talk to me that way, mister. I came here because I thought you'd help me out the way Dad's cracked you up in his letters. But I guess he was wrong, so just take me back to the spaceport. Quay grinned maliciously. You're not going to have your own way this time. In fact, I think you're going to get more than you bargained for. Our first stop is Ganymede. Several hours later, Quaid said, Ganymede is a small asteroid which has an atmosphere because its mass is so great. It's very heavy, understand? Kathleen nodded. She was sitting at Quaid's feet, looking out through the ship's nose at the blazing vastness of interplanetary space. I didn't think it was big enough to have any air. Is it breathable, Tony? Sure, there isn't quite enough oxygen, though, so it isn't very comfortable. But it's tremendously heavy for such a tiny world. We'll land there pretty soon. The televisor buzzed shrilly. Quaid reached out a long leg and clicked over the switch. On the screen, a man's face sprang out in sharp detail. He had good-looking, bony features with shaggy eyebrows and a jutting jaw under a harsh mouth like a steel trap. Tony, he said sharply. There's trouble. We left Arrows when we got your message. We've been on a Ganymede four hours now and the work's been started, but a herd of Hyclops cleaned out the camp. Quaid sucked in his breath. Yeah, what happened? They drove the crew away, the ones they didn't kidnap. I'm in the ship and they can't get at me, but I can't handle it alone. Jorso just wig-wigged a message from outside. The Hyclops are chasing me and says they'll go south on the bore. Are you armed? Sure, but I better come right to the camp, Perrin. The Hyclops will kill Jorso and others if you do. Better do as he says, Tony, and head this way afterward. Quaid hesitated. All right, hold on, kid. I'll be along. He snapped out the televisor and let his fingers dance over the keyboard. The ship leaped forward in an acceleration that would have killed the occupants if it had not been for the neutralizing gravity field. 
Can I help? The girl asked. Yeah, keep quiet. I'm sorry. Wait until we hit Ganymede. Then you can help, all right. Far ahead, spinning like a tiny ball through space, the asteroid came into view. Stretching across the face of the globe was a thin black line, the bore, a broad channel that held practically all the water on Ganymede. Gripped by the mass of the asteroid, another nevertheless moved in a tremendous tide along the bore whenever Ganymede came close to another body whose gravitation had appreciable influence. It was some time before they reached the bore and cruised swiftly northward, keeping a sharp watch for refugees. Kathleen first saw the man. He was staggering along the rocky bank, tripping occasionally on the grayish moss. Quaid grounded the ship almost beside him. The refugee stumbled to his knees, clawing at the ground. Quaid flung open the door and sprang out, Kathleen beside him. He lifted the other. Perrin! The steel trap mouth of the televisor operator gaped. Yeah, they got on the ship. I had to run for it. Get your so, Tony. Sure. Quaid lifted the other easily and turned to the cruiser, but Perrin struggled feebly. He's just up the bore a little ways, behind that rock. Couldn't come any further. Gently, Quaid put Perrin down. Wait here, he said to the girl, and sprinted along the bore. The rock was some distance away, and he found himself breathing heavily in the alien atmosphere with his deficiency of oxygen. He reached the boulder and saw there was no one behind it. Then he heard Kathleen's cry. He swung about. Despite the mass of Ganymede, the gravity was less than terrestrial, and he made a great bound that brought him also of the asteroid's close-flying air blanket. He held his breath, feeling an icy chill strike him. Looking down, he saw Perrin and the girl struggling. Kathleen went down, clutching at the man's legs, but he kicked free viciously, leaped within the spaceship. The door thudded shut. Quaid sprinted the rest of the way, though he knew he'd be too late. The space cruiser lifted and drove up, and in a moment was lost beyond the sharp curve of the horizon. He stood beside Kathleen. She was rubbing a bruise on her forehead. No, she said, answering Quaid's question. Not hurt a bit except my head, but I couldn't stop him. He just hit me and started to get in the ship. Swell, Quaid grunted. What is that rat up to, I wonder? He shrugged and turned to stare northward. Well, unless we want to stay here and starve, we better head for the pole. It can't be far. Can you walk? Sure. You're a cold-blooded person, aren't you? Haven't you any idea why I stole our ship? My ship, you mean? Quaid corrected, corrected pointedly. No, but I can probably find out at camp, so let's get started. You'll slow me down enough as it is. Kathleen compressed her lips on some retort and fell in behind Quaid as he started along the bank of the bore. There was no water in the channel. It was probably on the other side of the planetoid, drawn by the gravitational influence of Mars. The landscape was bleak and barren, rocks and a rubbery, grayish kind of moss. The curve of the horizon was startling. Quaid turned to the girl suddenly. See that? he asked, pointing. Something was bounding toward them in a series of short leaps. At first a scarcely visible dot, it grew rapidly in size until it plopped down directly in front of them and stood staring. It was about a foot and a half high. Quaid, watching Kathleen's face, chuckled. Never seen anything like that before, have you? She shook her head, wondering. What is it, Tony? Uh, I don't know the Latin name, but you notice the way it travels? It's vulgarly known as a bouncer. Stanhope called him that when he first landed in Ganymede, and the name stuck. But there isn't much known about them, as this asteroid is rather an outpost, nothing to bring people here. The bouncer eyed the two curiously, had a turnip-shaped head with two huge staring eyes, between which a button of a snout was set. Beneath a fantastically long upper lip was a puckered, sad-looking mouth. Underneath the fuzzy growth of soft white hair, its flesh was pink. Its body was shaped like that of a kangaroo, save that it had no tail. A round, bulging paunch made it resemble a grotesque little gnome. The short forearms and paws were curiously anthropoid in contour. Notice its eyes, Quaid said. It's got a unique range of vision, sees the infrared and ultraviolet rays. There's another funny thing about it, too. Listen. The puckered mouth opened. The bouncer nodded its turnip-shaped head a few times and suddenly announced, Your face is dirty, Kate.
Kathleen gave a soft little scream and started violently, while Quaid roared with laughter. The bouncer jiggled up and down, nodding as though pleased itself, and observed, It talked. It actually talked. You're not hearing things, Quaid chuckled. I told you bouncers are funny animals. Besides seeing ultraviolet infrared light, they can read thoughts. Kathleen swallowed with an effort. Really, Tony? I, I, I still don't believe it. Why not? Our thoughts are a combination of words and images, and bouncers can pick up strong vibrations broadcast by a brain. Try it. Think something hard. Kathleen looked at him questioningly, then glanced down at the bouncer, who nodded and worked his puckered mouth swiftly. She squared her shoulders, and her chin came up. Only a mannerless tramp would criticize the lady's personal appearance, the bouncer declared. I guess that's telling him. Oh, for heaven's sake, how do I turn it off? I can't stop. The small voice died in science as Quaid grinned. See, it picks up strong thought impulses, and that's probably why it never became popular as a pet. Too dangerous. I don't believe more than a couple were ever exported from Ganymede. Kathleen dropped to her knees beside the little animal and it pawed the air violently with its tiny hands. She scratched the point ahead gently, it jiggled to light, and said, Her hair's awfully pretty, if she weren't such a spoiled kid. Come on, Quaid said loudly and hastily started up the bank, his face flaming. Smiling maliciously, Kathleen followed, and after a brief hesitation, the bouncer made the party a trio. The girl quickly struck up a firm friendship with the agile little creature, and after asking Quaid for an opinion, which he refused to give, decided to call him Bill. For Bill's no worse than any other name, she told the bouncer, to which he replied, Especially if Tony doesn't like it. After that, Bill became silent, both Kathleen and Quaid tried desperately to suppress the strength of their thoughts. The story changed little as they advanced. It was a tumbled wilderness of rocks, the eternal soft gray moss, and the dry boar at the right. At last, without warning, they found Giorso. Quaid should have guessed what was wrong. Certainly the man's body didn't look normal with his bloated torso and withered, shrunken limbs. His leg crumpled on the moss, a skull face turned up blindly to the purple sky. As it was, he paused a dozen feet from the corpse and gripped Kathleen's arm. Wait a minute, he murmured. I'm trying to remember something, I think. Bill made his mistake, one that was almost fatal. Bounding about the two like an Indian rubber ball, he caught sight of Jorsal's body and immediately hopped toward it. He was scarcely two feet away when the corpse seemed to split down the center and a sinuous, blood-red thing flowed out on the moss. The bouncer gave a terrified squeak, hopped entirely over Jorsal's body and continued on without pausing until he vanished from behind a cluster of rocks. But the scarlet thing had stopped and with one end lifting, waving above slowly in the air, seemed to be listening or watching. Kathleen caught sight of Quaid's white face as he stepped in front of her. He took a stubby, dangerous-looking pistol from his pocket. And that is where we will leave our story, part one of Hollywood on the Moon. Thanks for listening today. Just a reminder, if you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. This has been a Brick Pickle Media production, and we'll be back with a new episode next week.